This is a Federal News Network podcast. No agency can operate effectively without a solid financial framework. And that's where chief financial officers come in. My next guest has operated as a CFO at large federal agencies and in two major universities. At the moment, she's the CFO of the Secret Service and also a new fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. Gwendolyn Sykes joins me now. Ms. Sykes, good to have you with us. Good morning. Great to be on board also. And gosh, there's so much to talk about. But one question that I'm curious about is you were CFO of NASA, basically a department-level sized organization, $16 billion in assets and spending every year. Now you're at the Secret Service, which is a component of a large department. What's the difference, and what was your choice in moving from the departmental level to the component level? Well, I have to be honest. Some were my choices. Some weren't my choices. At the NASA, I was actually a CFO, but I was what they call a political appointee. So I served under the Bush administration during that time frame. Okay. So, and that gave me my lovely journey into academia where I moved on to Yale and Morehouse. But the reason that I'm at Secret Service is I decided to come back in and continue my public service. And I have well over 30 years of federal service in federal financial management, which is just an honor to be recognized by NAPA. But most importantly, I can honestly tell you that there's really no difference between being at a agency level or a component level. Resources are resources. Anytime that you're trying to meet your operational mission, you need resources. Money talks and everything else walks. That's kind of the motive. And I have just truly enjoyed two great opportunities, particularly NASA, you know, putting rockets in space, uh, International Space Station, traveling to Mars, and then more importantly, being here at the Secret Service, supporting the men and women of the service in their protective and their investigative operations and ensuring that our financial currency is protected throughout the United States. Sure. And when you were working for the George W. Bush administration, that was 12, 15 years closer to the advent of the CFO Act itself. At that time, there were CFOs saying that agencies had not fully adopted all of the responsibilities and roles that they were supposed to have as outlined in that act. Now, that was back then. Coming back in now with the Secret Service, do you find that as the CFO, pretty much your responsibilities do align more so than they might have 15, 16 years ago with the intent of the framers of the CFO Act? We've come a long way since the 1990 CFO Act. I can honestly tell you that most of the agencies, most of my counterpart CFOs that I work with, particularly at State Department, particularly at the Department of Homeland Security, Commerce Department, all the CFOs that I work with and I have the opportunity to engage with, we have truly, truly adopted that framework of the 1990 CFO Act. Um, We are also working on and and having collaborative conversations about what's the next next to make sure that we are providing true transparency of the federal operations and the federal dollars as we move forward in our operations. And what are the frustrations? What are the opportunities? What's it like in what is essentially a cash accounting system year by year that the federal government operates under? It's like the biggest two-stroke engine in the world, you know, in an age of electric cars and four-stroke engines. But yet, that's the way it is. There's not really capital in the sense that you see it in industry or the types of endowments you might have seen at Morehouse and at Yale. And so what does that do to the job of CFO, do you think? It makes it more dynamic. It makes it more challenging. And it makes it more imperative that we do a solid job. 
first of all, it makes it more challenging because everything is dynamic. Who knew in 2019, walking into 2020, that we'd be experiencing a pandemic and somehow we would have to transform on a dime how we did our financial management operations, but more importantly, how we supported our organizations and missions in order to ensure that we were still being operational during the pandemic. Coming out of the pandemic, making sure that we're truly transparent to the American taxpayers for those dollars and resources that they've entrusted to us to make sure that we're doing a solid job in doing that. But more importantly, what I find the most humbling part of my job is the look on the faces of the men and women that I support and serve and making sure that they have the right tools at the right time to do what they need in order to make sure that they're effective in their operations. We're speaking with Gwendolyn Sykes. She's chief financial officer at the Secret Service and now a new fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. And before we get to that, the people in Secret Service or even at NASA, for that matter, that have programs, what do they seek from the CFO? What is it that you are called on to provide to them that have resources that they know they have and they've got to get something done? What do they ask of the CFO? Oh, it can be anything at any point in time from, unfortunately, when people jump over the fence and we need to build a new fence at the White House to being able to make sure that we have the properly trained and outfitted what we call our canine unit in order to support our agents from anything from the beast, uh, which is, of course, the presidential limo. So I finance, look at, figure out ways to support those type of resource needs on a daily basis. It's very, very dynamic. I can honestly tell you uh, there's not a boring day here at the Secret Service. That's right. So what you're saying is often unforeseen things that you could not possibly have budgeted for come up. Maybe somebody mm-hmm. smoked a cigar in the beast that wasn't supposed to. and you got to have to have No, it. I don't think they smoke a cigar <laughs> in the beast, but go ahead. <laughs> well, if I was president, I would. I would say, I'm president. <laughs> I can smoke a cigar in here, but maybe they don't. But a fence falling over or being wrecked or some kind of you know, act of destruction that you can't really anticipate. So contingencies. It's really more the world events and things that happen, Um, hurricanes, um, and a hurricane occurs. Of course, the president wants to be there with the people and make sure that they know that he's going to be there with the full support of the federal government to make sure that they can manage their way out of that current catastrophe. Uh, World leaders have to meet. The queen, unfortunately, passing away. Unforeseen, but we have to be in a position and have the resources in order to respond. So you figure out a way to get all of that done within the legal and statutory constraints and budgetary constraints that agencies live under. Mm-hmm. And that's why my office is very close to the general counsel's office. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Sounds like good geography there. And let me ask you this. As a black woman coming up through the federal ranks, there haven't been many like you in the financial function. What's that been like? And I know you've been noted for that very reason. Well, earlier on, there weren't a lot, but I can honestly tell you now there are many, many women due to the science, technology, engineering, and math STEM that has been very promulgated in the early 90s and well into the 2000s has really brought up a very strong 
cadre and I've done my own part to make sure that I've mentored, guided women of all nationalities in order to have a great seat at the table. Because you can only imagine if you manage the resources, somehow, some way, you will definitely be at the table. Yeah, what is your advice on the appeal of the financial world to young people of whatever stripe they might hail from? My appeal is the fact that, you know, debits and credits aren't what they used to be and accounting isn't what it used to be back in the day. You know, it's not the pocket pin protector. You really do get the opportunity to do great and interesting things. And with automation and everything that we've automated in the financial structure, we are now moving into an opportunity called data and data analytics, which supports those decisions at the table. So it's a great opportunity opportunity and uh, it's evolving into something that I don't think the CFO Act of 1990 even thought about. Interesting. And now you are a fellow at Napa. Do you have a area of interest? I guess it's finances and financial (laughs) controls, but what do you plan to work on there? Do you have any specific projects that have come up yet? Well, no projects have come up yet. I actually do not get inducted until tomorrow. They have sent a few ideas of some of the areas. Of course, one of them is definitely financial management. But I am actually looking at overall federal government and accountability, responsibility, but more important, developing that cadre and core of people that are really, truly ready to serve the public. Sounds like you've liked federal finances and federal service. Well over 30 years, sir. Gwendolyn Sykes is Chief Financial Officer of the Secret Service and a new fellow in the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Not a problem. I had a great opportunity. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action, and he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is 
to solve near-term problems. I always say it's sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday.